you know, off the top of my head, I wouldn't think of I wouldn't think of the punk rock Christian scene as being the intellectual vanguard either or or, you know, theological or anything like that. It seems like it's more pure emotion. Is that right? Or is that? Yes and no. Um, Okay. It's a spectrum. It's like saying I wouldn't think that classic rock uh, would be a, a very literary musical genre. And yet you got like two Led Zeppelin songs that reference Lord of the Rings and you got, you know, Jethro Tull and, <laughs> you know, you got yeah, the yeah, guys yeah, of yeah. a rush have all got like PhDs and something. It's but but you've also got some guys who are just there to just jam. And welcome to a deeply personal episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. Uh, He was a Baptist pastor. I'm not going to say what I was just yet. It's going to come out during the course of this episode. But we are glad that you're here. Uh, This, of course, is a production of the Coming Home Network. chnetwork.org is where you can find us if you want to find out more uh, resources for people who are uh, curious about the Catholic Church in any way. Uh, And, of course, if you want to join our online community, get involved with conversations uh, that are about all sorts of things related to Catholicism and uh, the like, then by all means, you're invited to come visit us at community.chnetwork.org. There's a wonderful group of very loving and kind people, and uh, they also let Ken and I participate too. So, plus me, Ken, and how are plus you? Plus me and you. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm a little bit nervous, frankly, uh, about this episode uh, because we are starting a new mm-hmm. series here. And it's going to follow loosely the format of our Coming Home Network retreats, which if you haven't ever been on a Coming Home Network retreat, we would love to have you. It's usually a group of people who are, some of them have become Catholic, some of them are thinking about it, all in a room together doing what you and I are about to do over the series of the next who who knows how many episodes. So, yeah. And you lead those, Ken. Yeah. So I'm assuming that you're kind of, you kind of know what you want to ask me and know what we want to talk about here, but I'm, I'm in your hands like a piece of putty here <laughs> yeah does that mean you want me to say something now i mean i don't know i mean i've just i got the plug in the retreats there's nothing else more for me to say until you grill me yeah i'll describe what we're going to do here in this series a little differently um those of you that have been following where we've got about 75 episodes of on the journey with matt and ken under our belt and the focus all along has been what what i would refer to as autobiographical apologetics that is, we are making the case for the Catholic faith in terms of our own stories. And the episodes so far have been pretty heavily content-driven. That is, working through the issue of sola scriptura, working through justification by faith alone, baptismal regeneration, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, the issue of authority in the Catholic Church as opposed to Protestantism. And, um, and then we just finished a series uh, that was focused on how we share um, or, or at least how I tend to do apologetics with those who doubt or deny, or deny the existence of God. And what we decided to do here that makes this different is we're going to kind of step back, Matt and I, and we're going to just kind of really tell our own stories. So very much focused on our own life experience 
And I'm going to be the interviewer first, so I'm going to be interviewing Matt. And if it takes uh, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, I don't really know how long. Um, I'm going to interview Matt, and I'm going to hear Matt's story. And believe it or not, I do not know Matt's story in great detail, even though we've been working together for like five years. I've never gone back and watched your appearance on the on the Journey Home show or anything like that. And so there there is a lot that I'm going to be learning fresh, and I'm excited about that. And then when I'm done interviewing you, we're going to turn the tables and you're going to do the same and interview me over the course of some weeks. And anyway, what we're going to do here is we are going to uh, tell our stories. And so we begin with Matt Swaim, the infamous Matt Swaim. And so I really am only going to ask a couple of questions today as, as we begin. My, but my first question to you, Matt, is this. How did you come to faith in Christ? How did, how did your spiritual life begin? Yeah, and that's uh, that's really the the kickoff question for all of this. And the reason again that we're doing this in a sort of a you know a storytelling format is because I assume that there are a lot of people who have had experiences similar to mine, and so probably they're wondering, well, how did this you know end me up one place and Matt another place and all my friends mm-hmm. from youth group another place uh, altogether? Um, suffice to say that I uh, my family is deeply Christian on both sides as far back as I know and am able to trace it. Um, so my Dad's side, Presbyterian stock, and uh, fairly um, tied to that denomination in, in a, a you know strong familial way. They all kind of hail from West Tennessee. My mom's side, country Methodists from East Tennessee. So I come by it honestly, my, uh, my, my Bible beltiness, I, I like to say. Um, now the Presbyterians, you know, kind of a little bit more, um, I guess, formal uh, worship. The country Methodists, you know, came out of a revivalist background. As a matter of fact, um, it's interesting. I was visiting uh, the cemetery outside my grandmother's church, and she just passed away recently. Um, she was piano player at her country Methodist church for 70 years before she died, um, playing Whoa. hymns out there. And, uh, you know, her family members, some of them were named after, like, D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey. We're talking, like, revivalist, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. hymn singing, tent preaching, type of stuff like deeply faithful deeply musical on my grandmother's side and so so why don't so you that's, have a that's my stock why don't why don't you have a southern accent well because i'm in radio ken because i'm in radio although okay. um i will say this that my radio co-host anna mitchell whenever i've gone and visited my family and i come back she always gives me a really hard time for a couple of days when i get back because it it all kind of comes back to me and i start y'all and everybody and then you know my secrets out. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So my parents met at the University of Tennessee um, and uh, very much had uh, sort of a born-again Christian worldview in the way that they raised us. Um, the farthest back that I personally remember was uh, going to a Methodist church in uh, southern Indiana, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was baptized there from all accounts. I don't remember much of this at, at all, but that's what they tell me. Uh, then in, you know, I guess my third grade year, we moved to, uh, Springfield, Ohio and, uh, started attending the church of the Nazarene. Now this, I, I mentioned this to, to point out the fact that so far you've heard Presbyterian country Methodist, yeah, yeah. more of like a middle of the road, not high church Methodist. And then Nazarene, my family was like a whole lot of evangelical families and they just wanted to go mm-hmm. where there was good preaching that was solidly scriptural where there was great fellowship so that you could like grow in faith together in a community. 
um, good youth groups so your kids, you know, would be engaged in the faith early on and so on. So, I mean, that's what we were looking for. Um, yeah. You know, I was going to ask you already. So on the one side, you have Methodist and then and you have Nazarene. On the other side, you have Presbyterian. So was there like an Arminian Calvinist divide within your family or was your dad is sort of like a evangelical Presbyterian? That question was so far off of my radar as we're okay. going to get okay. into uh, uh, here okay. in a little bit. That was like not even something that occurred to me. So okay. I uh, accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior at Vacation Bible School when I was like seven or eight. And I, what, I was mm. looking for show and tell items to bring today. And I still have somewhere. And I, I destroyed my closet before this episode trying to find the little tract um, mm-hmm. that Miss Nancy walked me through when I accepted Christ in Vacation Bible School. It was one of those... Um, it was a comic book, and there was this kid with his five-fingered glove. And you've seen probably, like, the power bracelets that have the different colored beads, and there's mm-hmm, various mm-hmm. things, but, like, the, the one of them's black to represent the, your sin, and one of them's red to represent the blood of Christ, and then, you know, there's the white that uh, after you mm-hmm. ask for forgiveness, you're cleansed, and then there's the green as you grow as a disciple of Christ, and the white which represents, or the gold which represents heaven at the end. That was my experience, right? I knew Christ all along. Um, I didn't understand the concept of baptism. My tradition didn't understand the context uh, context of baptism as something that really brought a person into uh, the Christian community. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was the marker point. Um, and for me, ages seven through, I'd say about late middle school, all I knew about Christianity is that you love God, <clears throat> you confess your sins— and because I came from a revivalist group, Nazarene types of people, there were plenty of opportunities to go down to the altar and rededicate after you backslid. So did that many, many times over the, over the course <laughs> of the years. I thought that uh, the difference between Presbyterians and country Methodists and Nazarenes were, you know, more differences in taste, mm. right? Like it was more like my dad's parents preferred kind of like a more formal you know, kind of structured mm-hmm. situation where everybody dressed up real nice. My grandmother's people, they preferred to be able to come out of the fields in their overalls and come and sing hymns at the top mm-hmm. of their lungs, right? Um, mm-hmm. And my parents, you know, in suburban 1980s Ohio for a few years, we just preferred a mix of the contemporary and the traditional, you know, and we were hearing a preaching style that appealed to us. I didn't know there was anything uh, like a... Calvinist Arminian debate yeah. about free will and predestination. I didn't know that as far as I knew, all Christians yeah. were the same. Yeah. These were the salad yeah. days, Ken, as far as my yeah. concept yeah. of Christianity. I was like, this is amazing. You know, and I was thinking, the church was is thinking, all of us who believe in Jesus. I was thinking your little multicolored bracelet is sort of the equivalent of your, your stained glass window back then. Right. Teaching uh, you the gospel. Yeah. Teaching you the gospel. It's the 1980s Christian version of like the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, you haven't watched that far in the Marvel Universe, have you? No, no, you haven't. No. Well, at any rate, each bead represents the Soul Stone or the Power Stone. At any rate, okay. it, what you also have to understand about 80s and 90s evangelicalism is that this was this was peak 80s and 90s mm-hmm. evangelicalism. This was this is evangelicalism's height. It was a consumer base that behaved in unison. Um, you have the uh, the Reagan to Bush years, and so there's kind of like a conservative Christian vibe surrounding that. 
it's the era where Billy Graham's still doing crusades. Yeah. Um, it's the era where if, uh, if Petra comes out with an album on Tuesday, every Christian household in America owns it by the following yeah. Tuesday. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, 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 I mean, that's what I grew up in. Um, and so I think because of that also, the fact that Christians seem to function as a unified consumer block, that also kind of contributed to my idea that like all Christians are basically the same. They just like different types of music. So, so did you have any conception of the Catholic faith during those years? And if you did, what was it? Zero. I'm telling <laughs> you, I don't know how I was shielded from it. Um, I have no idea. There well, may Tennessee have been a Catholic. Helps. <laughs> right. I mean, so so it wasn't part of my um, my Southern family's experience at all. Yeah. Um, Bible. I belt. didn't watch. The, I didn't watch the Godfather movies. Um, you know, so I didn't have like the mafia thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I had like a vague concept, um, you know, based on social studies classes that, mm-hmm. you know, there were some things that happened in the Middle Ages and whatever. But Martin Luther came along and, and those people don't really exist anymore. <laughs> right. That, that whole Catholic thing. If it does exist, it's like Irish and Italian people from New York who don't really like actually care about God at all. Um, you know, that's yeah, kind of monsters, the, huh? Mobsters. Right, you know, <laughs> Yankees fans, Red Sox fans, um, you know, not much. You know, it's funny, it's funny, you remind me of, of something, because when I was a kid, I think the only, my earliest conception of Catholicism was just this this family across the street. They they were Catholic, but the only reason I knew that is because on Saturday afternoons, I would see the whole family like walk out in a little line to their car. All the boys had short sleeve white shirts and ties on. And I knew that they were all going to confession. I was like, what? I had no concept what that was, but... No concept of that. that yeah, yeah. Way far away from my radar. Um, yeah. Now, I did get into some anti-Catholicism, um, but that was after kind of an event that I'll, I'll mention in a little bit. I mean, things will pop okay. up every now and then. A memory will like sort of flash back to me of something that I remember as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, wait, that was Catholic. I had no idea about it at the time. Um, like all the stuff in your social studies books, when you're reading about the pioneers of astronomy and science and, and everything else, and you realize later on that, you know, a bunch of these people were Catholic priests who mm-hmm, were like, mm-hmm. you know, the founders of modern genetics and, and everything else. But um, Okay, well, all this all this leads to the key question for today's interview then, and that is, that, sure. okay, you come from this background. It, it's, it's not, not only has nothing to do with Catholicism, but it's very non-theological. So what in the world happened in your life? that got you beginning to think about the Catholic faith? Well, I can't answer that question, Ken, unless I tell you, I have to first lay the groundwork of what got me thinking that that idyllic picture of Christianity was an illusion. Because ultimately the the opening of my heart to Catholicism would come several years later. Mm -hmm. But first, basically everything that I knew and loved about Christianity had to go kablooey in front front of me <laughs> um and it did that in a few well, different ways um one was through uh scandal there was a, hmm. a scandal in a, a nazarene church that i was going to um involving uh marital infidelity among the leadership and it you know in, in our particular sort of ecclesiastical world i mean we've been may have been part of the church of the nazarene but as far as we were concerned there was only one church that mattered, and it was the one we went to. We weren't concerned mm-hmm. with hierarchy mm-hmm. or, or, or the district assembly. 
what mattered was our congregation. And when mm -hmm. the leadership broke at our congregation, and this was a very vibrant, I mean, hundreds of people on a Sunday morning congregation, um, things started splitting over how to handle it. Things started splitting over like, well, don't you believe God's a God of forgiveness? Or, you know, yes, but we've got to make reparations for the damage that was caused. It all went kaboom. And my family was involved in leadership with and, it. And the church and how basically— How old were you? How, how old were you at the time? Yes, so I was uh, junior high. Okay. Um, I would say probably 7th, 8th. Mm-hmm. It really started to come down right before I went to high school, if I recall correctly. These— the dates get a little bit fuzzy to involved. me in all this. But yeah. Yeah. Because there were some, some years where it was tried to be patched up and, and repaired. But at the end of the day, it, it just went so far afield. And there was so much hurt and division and people picking sides and tribes that my family, my dad actually started looking for another job uh, in another mm. town. Um, because, and this is something that uh, a lot of our members at the Coming Home Network know very deeply especially if they um if they're coming into the catholic faith from another congregational background that it's not just like well now i go to this church and i used to go to this that church it's like your whole social network yeah like the people you call to bring over food when you're sick um the people mm -hmm. who ask about you and 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 keep you in the prayer chain like it all it all is was tied to that for us um so that, but that scandal, it made me um, deeply question not the reality of God. Uh, that was not really part of the question, but it did make me wonder if I'm supposed to be, if these are the people I'm looking to and they've failed and I can't trust them on living this out, does it mean I can trust what they taught me to be true? Um, and so that, that really got me, I mean, I'd been a, a Bible quizzer and, and studying the word. That's the other show and tell right there. Mm -hmm. There you go. Two, uh, two Bible quizzing trophies that I've got busted <laughs> out, uh, on my back shelf until at last I lay them down and exchange them for a crown. Um, but I mean, it shook me. I started going back to the Bible for myself and just really, really reading it and seeing well, what does mm -hmm. this really mean? Like, um, I mean, I think that's when I really got serious about it. And again, not really, when you don't have a ride and there's no social mm -hmm. media yet, um, you still, you know, read what you can, but you can't Google stuff. And you just, you know, I'm making notes in the margins of what I think this means mm -hmm. and how I think it ought to be interpreted. And I'm like, well, I don't have no idea what this means, so we'll skip past that. Um, I mean, it really was an, a, an investigation of Scripture for myself because I wanted to do what I'd been told a hundred times from the pulpit, and that is, don't believe me. Search the scriptures for yourself, and you'll see that it's true. And so that's what you I know, was. You know, I, you know, I don't want to send us off on on this tangent now. It'll it, it, it'll come up later, but I'm sure some listening to you speak right now might be thinking at this point, well, the same thing happens to us when we become Catholics. That is, you see scandal in the church. You see mm -hmm. people who are not living up to the ideals of the faith, and the question comes to mind. The exact question you asked. Well, if I can't trust them to be living the faith, can, can I trust that what they're teaching me is true? So that question comes up for Catholics as well. But you go ahead with your story. I don't want to go ahead into that. The, the only thing that I'll say in regard to that, Ken, is that I yeah. feel like I was inoculated against that particular objection 
by my experience of scandal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in in my Nazarene church. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, from a very young age, it's a, it's a gift, really, that I was able to take a step back and say, well, I'm going to... I'm going to take Christ on his merits Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to discount his reality based on people who fumble the ball. Um, Right. Right. So there's, well, there, there are a couple things that, that, that happened um, Mm -hmm. that really also continued to break things down. And I may have to save some of this for, for another episode. Um, You've got some more time. Yeah. I've got a little bit more time, but, um, when you're reading the Bible for yourself and you're a junior higher, one of the things that you really uh, want to gravitate toward uh, because you want your Bible reading to be exciting is the book of Revelation and maybe some of Daniel. <laughs> All the stuff with like dragons and the end of the world, you know. And so I think that's one of the first times that I, it started to realize, it hit me um, as I was picking up, you know, various books from the church library and, you know, end time speculation that there's some people who have some major disagreements about what the Bible says about stuff. Um, you know, you're kind of, the reason I'm smiling, uh, you're cracking me up already because a young man in junior high faces this situation. He begins to think, am, am I being taught the truth? What is the truth? Well, you don't go to Revelation and Daniel. <laughs> you, don't, you don't go there. Well, or Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, you know. I right. Think, there's some other places you could go first. But but in a sense, but, Ken, but I, my I, world I had ended, right? I mean, it was yeah. felt pretty apocalyptic to me, uh, yeah. the way that my, my whole world was blowing up. Um, we moved to Kentucky, uh, my family and I, and this is um, this would have been 1995. I started school mm-hmm. in Kentucky, uh, high school. I was a junior down there, and not long after moving there, I, I picked up a job at Family Christian Store, which was... Mm-hmm. Um, again, sort of like the flagship evangelical bookseller, like mm-hmm. it was, it functioned like the Protestant magisterium for a number of years. Like mm-hmm. it basically, whatever it sold was what evangelical Christianity believed as a block. I mean, of course we mm-hmm. had Baptist mm-hmm. bookstore and, and, you know, Berean and stuff, but family Christian was like, it was the Walmart. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think too, when I saw that on the surface of things, it looked like we were all the same, but I would start digging into the, the shelves and say, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, T.D. Jakes and Chuck Swindoll don't, they don't run out of the same playbook exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And again, this is this is the sort of stuff that, you know, it doesn't really bother me that much that Christians have, have major differences, but it was substantial enough to where I was like, well, there has to be a right way. Right. I mean, there's got to be a right way um, that's beyond just like, I like it this way or I like it that way. And and, and mm-hmm. that's when I started to, I think, get um, some real spiritual pride about um, about how that was supposed to play out. And mostly uh, manifesting in a lot of cynicism, like me pointing at, you know, telev- televangelists or, you know, other people mm-hmm. who were given cheesy presentations of the faith. And just to be able to say, like, well, that's obviously wrong. Like, Thomas Kincaid is obviously cheesy or, like, what? So so you're totally non-theological. Thomas Kincaid there, but. So you're totally non-theological as you're growing up. But now you're a little bit older. You're in high school. You start to work at the bookstore and you became like a scholar, right? You began to read everything and 
and suddenly you have these really strong opinions about what's right and what's wrong. Is, is that what was happening? Well, yes, yes and no. So, like, to say that I was a scholar would, or even well, intended I mean, in to be a scholar. I mean, in your was, mind, I mean, in your mind. Yeah. Right. It, it wasn't even that. It wasn't that. It was more like I felt like I had a sense in my bones um, uh-huh. that that we weren't doing it right, or that, or maybe not even that we weren't doing it right. That those guys weren't doing it right, and those guys weren't doing it right, and those <laughs> guys weren't doing it right. Like it was a sense in my bones. Um, you know, I started I started to pick up and and read a lot more about that, but um, they're kind of they're kind of a couple things that happened. Uh, in the course of that. And one is that as a new kid in a new school who just came out of a church that exploded, um, being in public school, I saw that, um, what we were being fed, kind of the secular progressive public school, whatever. I was like, that's a lie. Obviously that's not what it means to be a human being. Um, Hmm. and I saw the consumer Christianity, the, um, what I felt was very surface and image driven Christianity is like, that's obviously can't work either. Uh, so I descended into the only place that I knew or felt like I knew I could find comrades in arms who were dissatisfied with both of those worlds. And that's when I ended up in the Christian rock punk metal underground. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that's really kind of where the second stage of the story begins. Um, because, again, I'd, I'd listened to all kinds of Christian music before, but a lot of it was the CCM contemporary. Some of the things that you've seen on vinyl on my shelves before, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the mainstream Christian um, worldview. But it was all, I felt, um, very packaged, uh, very, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what. It didn't resonate with me. You know, Off the top of my head, I wouldn't, think of, I wouldn't think of the punk rock Christian scene as being the intellectual vanguard either or, or, you know, theological or anything like that. It seems like it's more pure emotion. Is that right? Or is that? Yes and no. Um, Okay. It's a spectrum. It's like saying, I wouldn't think that classic rock uh, would be a, a very literary musical genre. And yet you got like two Led Zeppelin songs that reference Lord of the Rings and you got, you know, Jethro Tull and <laughs> you know, you got yeah, the yeah, guys yeah, have, yeah. a rush have all got like PhDs in something. It's but but you've also got some guys who are just there to just jam. Um I don't know, I found a lot of kindred spirits in there. It, <laughs> there was a lot going on in that world. Tooth and Nail Records had just started up as like a, a West Coast Christian sort of punk and metal underground, you know, label. But there was also a bunch of stuff that had sort of gone on from the early eighties and was moving into the um early nineties in the Christian alternative world, people like Daniel Amos and the prayer mm-hmm. chain and the 77s and, um, you know, bands like poor old Lou and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, probably some people that you're familiar with, uh, you know, cause a lot of these people were from the West coast, you know, from the, up mm-hmm. the road from you, um, Michael Knott and LSU. And some of these, some of these guys are making deep cut literary references. Some of these guys were asking really, really hard questions. And, mm-hmm. um, I felt like for the first time in my life, I was in a group of people that was willing to look at Christianity and and take a hard look at themselves and a hard look at the hard teachings of Christ and realize that this is a this is a mess and we need grace 
And some of us are a mess too, <laughs> you know, and some of these guys were willing to admit that they were, uh, they were struggling with things. And that was, uh, that was consoling So where were you? Me. So where were you theologically during the, this period? Just basic evangelical? I'd say, uh, basic evangelical is the best way to put it. Um, mm -hmm. I was, uh, I was playing in bands at this point too. Um, by the time I was in a uh, senior in high school, mm -hmm. you know, moving into college, was playing in bands and trying to write stuff that sounded like these kinds of things. Um, but it was a mix. I don't, I don't think I realized until later on how mixed my theology was mm -hmm. because I didn't realize that, you know, some of these bands were Calvinists. Some of these bands were once saved, <laughs> always saved. Some of these bands were like, you can definitely lose your salvation. Um, some of these bands were saying various things about, you know, all kinds of theological concepts. But to me, like I wasn't, I wasn't hearing the distinctions between the theology. I was just thought all these were valid Christian ideas. I could, mm -hmm. I don't think I was mature enough at that stage to see that this idea was in opposition to this idea, um, as it were. Mm -hmm. I was just listening okay. to all of it and loving it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. But then something must have happened along along the way that that began at least to open your mind. Like, what about Catholicism? You know, to, to even see the Catholic Church on the radar screen. I yeah, mean, if I'll you tell can you touch that, on that, yeah, if you can touch on that before we end this first episode, that would be great. If you can kind of give us a hint of where we're going. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what happened. Um, since you asked me, I will tell sure. you. Sure. Ultimately, my dissatisfaction with contemporary Christianity was, was behind this. Mm -hmm. But I started to get into debates about music in the places that we were playing as a Christian band, Christian, mm -hmm. you know, rock and roll band. We would play some of these youth group events and the Baptist pastor would come up after we'd played like on a Sunday night for his youth group and say something like, man, I'm really disappointed in you guys. Um, I was expecting you guys to preach the gospel and you didn't. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Hmm. And, and, you know, come to realize that he wanted us to have like an invitation to accept Christ at the end of the concert. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or as the, the praise and worship movement is budding and, and growing and becoming like a big industry. People would be like, oh, man, I'm really bummed that you guys don't. It'd be so easy for you to just play like a couple praise and worship songs at the end of your set. And we're like, that's not. Yeah. First of all, I like I like John Wesley. I don't like this new stuff, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it was kind of unsettling to me. And there were some bands, uh, you know, this has gone on earlier with Amy Grant. Uh, but now what's going on with bands like P.O.D. and M.X.P.X. and Switchfoot and, and some others where Christian bands are starting to get mainstream air, airplay, uh, Jars of Clay. Mm -hmm. um, and some others and even a lot of the underground bands that we were playing with were playing shows with secular bands and so this question was was coming up what makes music christian mm -hmm. and so i started really studying um you know everything i could find on christianity and the arts and this took me to mm. some really interesting places uh it took me to um to really look up who were some like really good gritty straightforward but really imaginative christian writers over the years and I knew about C.S. Lewis, obviously, but I hadn't really messed around with Tolkien very much because, mm -hmm. you know, a good Protestant doesn't read Tolkien as heavily as they read Lewis because you can't read The Lord of the Rings and be like, oh, that that character obviously represents Jesus, right? <laughs> like you can with Aslan. Mm -hmm. um, but it took me to some other places, too, uh, to Madeline Langle and Dorothy Sayers. But uh, it also took me to Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy and Graham Greene and uh, G.K. Chesterton, who was a mm -hmm. huge person for me. And working at Family Christian Store, um, I would see some of these 
you know, writers and be like, I should get this book or I should get this collection of essays by this person. And so I'd go and I'd go into the Christian classics section and I couldn't find them. And then I'd go, uh, I'd say, oh, it's just special order. I could still use my employee discount. I'd go to order <laughs> these people and mm-hmm. I couldn't find them in our system. And it began to sort of dawn on me over the course of a few months that, I mean, if these are like the great Christian literary minds, especially of the past like two centuries, mm-hmm. like why don't we carry them? Mm-hmm. And it sort of dawned on me, and I don't know if it was a moment or if it was just like a growing dread that like, oh yeah, maybe it's because Tolkien and Chesterton and uh, O'Connor and Percy and Green, and mm-hmm. maybe it's because they're all Catholics. Like, and that scared me. Um, but it also intrigued me that, I mean, why is it that, mm-hmm. you know, we're selling our Christian fiction section is full of like end times literature and yeah. Amish prairie romance novels and like stuff that, I mean, yeah. there's a little bit of Frank Peretti in there too, but like for the most part, it's airport mm-hmm. novel letter level literature. Why can't we write stuff like these Catholics have written? Like, what's different? Um, mm-hmm. And that was intriguing to me. That was intriguing to me. And it, the road led much further, and there were a lot of other turns. But I think that was based on my experience of, uh, of everything to that point. Like, I felt like these people were writing about reality. Hmm. And uh, in the same way that the bands that I'd been gravitating toward had been writing about reality, in the same way that the people that, you know, had been kind of up on the stages Mm -hmm. preaching kind of a packaged Christianity weren't preaching about reality. Like I felt like these bands and now these authors were hitting on something very real. And that, that to me was very intriguing. Wow, that is a... Your story is so different than mine that it, 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 it's interesting for me to just reflect on the differences. And I don't want to talk about my story now. We'll get to that later. But oh, I'm going to talk to you about your story again. But so. but you very you very much went a route in which your imagination played a played a a large part. You know, yeah. it wasn't like like you said. Your upbringing is kind of non theological. You've got all these influences, but you're not really thinking theology. The the thing that happened in your church wasn't theological. It was a moral issue, that fragmentation and all that. And then you go off, and then then you're led into music. Again, another area in which imagination is so powerful to where, it, well, even the way you describe it before that time, when you say you just kind of knew in your bones, you kind of just knew yeah. in your bones that this wasn't right or that wasn't right. And then you begin to read people like Graham Greene. Um, I remember the first time I read one of his books, too. And um, Flannery yeah. O'Connor and Tolkien and Chester. And you're talking about the imagination again, that you were being one. I, I mean, I can see where it's kind of going, but you were being one at least slightly initially in the direction of a Catholic worldview by the opening of your imagination. Is yeah. that right? That's that's very much right. Uh, so I think to, to distinguish it from a lot of stories that I hear, because as you know, we hear people come from every background imaginable and mm-hmm. come through every door mm-hmm. imaginable. Some people come through the door of the church's moral teaching, like that's what gets their attention. Or some people come through right, right. the question of um, authority in a more technical sense. I think that's what it was, what it was for me. Mm-hmm. But it was less having to do with like 
how do the scripture and the tradition and the magisterium all fit together? Like that question would come. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. more like, which who's telling the truth about what reality is like? Mm-hmm. Like that's that was kind of kind of the driving question for me. Like who? It's it's kind of like what Peter says to Jesus when he says, you know, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'm in a communion and liberation reading group, and the way that some of the Italians translate it when they say it, they're like, uh, you know, to whom shall I go? You have the words that explain life. Like, mm. <laughs> I was looking mm-hmm. for, like, who is it that can explain what what's really happening here? Uh-huh. And I felt, I felt like these people could, but it scared me when I found out that these people who could were Catholics. Just happened to... Just happened to be Catholic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, m- maybe that's a great uh, place to. Is it is it a great place to break off? It's good this enough week for me. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know there's a lot more, you know, and so this is really good so far to get a sense of where you're going. It, um, if this is a good place, so let's go ahead and tie it up now. You and I had kind All of right, made a vow good. that we would try to we would try to get back to having our episodes leave New Year's resolution shorter than they became than shorter they became. episodes in the new year. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well. Um, once Ken gets done grilling me over the course of some episodes, I really am going to turn the tables on him because I sort of know his story, but there's some levels I want to explore. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, there are if no any levels. of you... There are no levels. I operate on just one level. You're a unileveler. <laughs> you're, you're a monoleveler. Um, Very simple. But but if any of this resonated with you, if you have any questions, if maybe yeah. it connects with your own story, um, maybe if you just are a big fan of some of those super obscure 80s and 90s Christian bands that I name-dropped, uh, either way... We'd love to hear from you. Uh, go visit chnetwork.org and uh, come say hello. Uh, check out our resources. There's tons of them there. And especially if you're looking for conversation with uh, people who are all in this together, come on over to our online community, community.chnetwork.org. I'm Matt Swaim, and I feel like I've talked more in this episode than I have in all the previous episodes combined. <laughs> Ken? That may be. That may be. Well, listen, I, I look forward to uh, hearing from you again next week. We will continue. Sounds great, Ken. Until then. Okay. Goodbye.